Welcome back to Now, the podcast celebrating a variously compiled world of pop. In each episode, a variety of fabulous guests and I explore favourite compilation albums, as well as considering how these collections shaped pop culture and now fondly stand as time captures for our own musical and life milestones. I hope that you will enjoy the pop memories in this episode. Please follow the show through your favourite podcast provider and join in with me, Ian, on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. For this episode, I'm joined by writer, editor and tall person, Michael Cragg. As a journalist, Michael has written for the likes of The Guardian, The Observer, Vogue, GQ, The Face and Billboard. He also edits Beat magazine and was contributing editor at The Guardian Guide for over three years. Prior to that, he was features editor at Pop Justice, during which time he supported Lily Allen at Shepherd's Bush Empire. In 2023, Michael's book Reach for the Stars, Fame, Fallout and Pop's Final Party, 96 to 2006, was released to, I think we can say, universal acclaim. Michael has interviewed the likes of Lady Gaga, Björk, Kylie Minogue, Max Martin, Katie Perry, Giorgio Moroder and many, many more. Michael, welcome back to now. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. That was amazing. Sound like I've done a lot. It does. It's always, always nice to puff the chest out and go, yeah, that, yeah, that does. I know. You, like as a freelancer, you never really do it because you're just sort of moving on to the next thing, and then suddenly you're like, oh, hang on, yeah, I've done quite a lot. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to start by talking a bit about Reach for the Stars. Um, mm. Bob Stanley describes the book as a terrific piece of social history. Ian Wade on The Quietus calls it a stupendous brick of a book, which I think is a compliment. <laughs> and Will Hodgkinson in The Times says it's funny, detailed, with a clear love and understanding of the people involved. So I, first of all, have to say huge congratulations. I loved it. But however, not everyone was convinced. Because if you have the book on the back jacket, Louis yeah. Walsh told you that no one would read it. Yes, he did. <laughs> so can you sum up for us then why Louis was indeed wrong? Louis was wrong, thank God, because when that happened, I was like <laughs> distraught because it was just a very stressful time in the book making process. Like he's in the book. So he told me mm -hmm. that it, before we started or during, like I just said, OK, let's go with the interview. And then he said that and I was like, oh, OK. So that was quite stressful. And I emailed the publisher and was like, oh, Louis Walsh has just said this. And they were obviously like, oh, that's great. We can use that. And I was like, yeah, but what if he's right? And then luckily... He was wrong, which is good. And it's not the first time that Louis Walsh has been wrong about pop music or pop culture. But I'm glad that he was in this instance because everyone seems to have taken it as I sort of intended, which was a sort of heartfelt reappraisal of that period, you know, from a modern angle, you know, and going into sort of some of the more troubling aspects, but also like celebrating the music and the and the pop stars and the songwriters and the producers and everyone involved and I don't feel like that had been done before, so I wanted to do that properly, and hopefully I did. I mean, I did 110 interviews for it, so yeah. I wanted to make sure that everything was covered, and hopefully it was. It reads as a wonderful, not just appraisal of a period of pop that maybe hasn't had a lens and a focus put on it yet, but it also reads as a really fascinating social commentary for that decade. Yeah, I wanted to include, you know, the sort of where where things were, even in the pop industry at the beginning of the book, which is with the Spice Girls and, you know, CDs and the money that was sort of swilling around and Spice Girls sort of creating this whole thing and then moving through to like downloads coming in and then, you know, it stops in 2006 because... Smash Hits had ended and Top of the Pops had stopped and CD UK was gone and Pop World was changing and all these things that were there were gone. And then 
MySpace and the internet was coming and Lily Allen was coming and Arctic Monkeys and much more sort of like real, in inverted commas, like lyrics about like real life. And and that wasn't what this period was. So I wanted to include that. And then, you know, changing attitudes to sort of, well, I don't know if they have changed, but, you know, like racism and homophobia and mm. the bullying sort of aspect, the mental health aspect, like all those things I wanted to include their experiences of that just to sort of shine a light on it. And maybe for people to think, well, actually, have we moved on that much? I mean, I don't think we necessarily have, but it was so openly talked about that, you know, oh, we can't put Mystique on the cover of a magazine because Black people don't sell magazines. And that was just a reason that was voiced in a meeting and no one was like well hang on so it was important for me to include those things and have the people tell that story who maybe weren't really asked those questions at the time that's what i find fascinating it is from the voices from the people who were there some of those big names that you would have expected but actually some of those how could i put it slightly forgotten names as well mm, but yeah. their stories were so touching and you know go back to that point that will hodgkinson made that real affection, not just from those people, but also for you, from you for that time as well. Yeah, I wanted to, I didn't want to be like snarky because, you know, what's the point really? You know, bringing them into this book and then just being like, oh, you didn't write any of the songs. It's like, well, yeah. who cares? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to sort of get across that I loved those songs and that I wanted them to sort of talk about it. And I loved their stories of it and sometimes the sort of smaller pop stars for whatever reason they didn't sort of take off in the way some of the others did but they had such interesting sort of insights into it because maybe they're a bit further removed now or they're not still in that world you know a lot of these people are still together still touring still playing like a sort of circuit of some kind or doing big shows like steps so I wanted the big guns and the sort of small minnows uh to be there and also the producers and the directors of videos and PRs because they all saw it from side angles looking in and being a bit like okay I can see the bigger picture or I can't see the bigger picture or I'm not as invested in this so now I'm going to tell you a funny story about Martin McCutcheon you know wanting to be treated the same as Barbara Streisand because they they can say that now some of the pop stars were still a bit in that mindset it felt like of I need to protect this brand, you know, S Club 7, maybe more so than the others, because that's just what they're sort of used to and what they've had instilled in them. And so they were maybe not giving as much as you sort of wanted, but then the people around them could. And so then you get that interesting dynamic. It enabled me to go back and revisit pop music, not just reassess it, but reassess it within that context of that final period without being too melancholy in some way, mm. that final period of that type of pop music, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because it was very specific in a way, you know, the 80s had been sort of Duran Duran and, you know, and pop stars were involved in the making of those songs a lot more. It was like bands who were making pop music, but were like, you know, George Michael, an incredible lyricist, obviously, and producer. So then the 90s sort of came and obviously... The Spice Girls just sort of changed everything. And as much as they did write on those songs, it created a sort of need for this like manufactured, quickly made pop music where let's just get the best songwriters and the best producers to sort of have all these songs ready to go or to sort of make them while the band are off on tour and just get them done. And those people are 
incredible. You know, Max Martin started in this period, Stargate started in this period. You had like Biff Stannard and you had Steve Mack, who's sort of done all of Ed Sheeran or a lot of Ed Sheeran stuff. So it wasn't like it was just the sort of dregs of what was lying around. It was being made by incredible people who were using these sort of young, excitable, occasionally like incredible pop stars to sort of be the front of them. And there were bad songs and there were great songs and there were bad pop stars and there were great pop stars. But I think that's sort of part of it. That's kind of the excitement of it rather than a sort of streamlined, you know, everyone is on the same level of like fine or good. Yeah, It was hilarious that, you know, you could be thrown together in a band and have a top 20, maybe a top 10 from nowhere. The biggest feelings I had reading it was fatigue because these pop stars worked incredibly hard. And, you know, thinking of the Sugar Babes, for example, you know, um, Five and, you know, these pop stars talking about absolute workaholic structures. I thought you were talking about the fatigue because it's such a long book, which it is. <laughs> just FYI, if you haven't already got it, it's 500 and something pages. And it's a lot longer than I was supposed to file it at. But ever since I've been writing about pop, you know, the schedules are sort of wild. But obviously back then you had so many magazines, so many TV shows, so many like, you know, like Radio 1's sort of, what are they called? Where it was like on the beach. Yeah, like roadshows and things. Roadshows. Yeah. You had loads of roadshows that you'd have to do and you'd have to do promo. Like you had a six-week lead-up time to the single. It wasn't just like, oh, my new single's out tomorrow, pre-save it on Spotify. It was like, right, we need to tell as many people as possible this is coming. We don't have the internet. We need to be on TV, in the magazines, on the radio. We have to travel to Newcastle in a van then come all the way back to London for some reason, then go to Manchester for some reason, then to like Birmingham, then back in like a day because we need to tell everyone that this new single is coming because if this single doesn't make the top 10, at least the top 10, that's it, we're done. Albums would come out even if the singles hadn't done that. Like All Stars had an album out even though they were not known Whereas later on, it became this thing of like, right, we'll just quietly never release an album. So I think at least if you were a fan of All Stars, you'd know that you were going to get like an album's worth, which I think is quite amazing. One of the reasons the X Factor sort of eventually died was because the winners weren't even releasing an album. So it's like, well, why am I investing in you? So there was this real need to like make people invest in you. And then fans could get so much stuff, even for a band. I keep saying All Stars, poor thing. But like V or whatever, you know, they had an album out and you could buy that. You could buy the singles. You could get the magazine covers and the cuttings. And it was a fun time. Reach for the Stars, Fame, Fallout and Pop's final party uh, available now. And we can also now see available in paperback too. Paperback if you're in an airport. If you're on your holidays, it's now in W.H. Smith's travel in an exclusive paperback. And then the actual paperback, which will have a different cover, is in October. Available at all good bookshops, a thoroughly insightful, funny and tiring in in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) In all ways. In all ways, yeah. Yeah. Let's go back and get a bit of a kind of concept of how music came into your life. What were those early influences? Who were those early influencers as well? on your musical upbringing? So the first album I asked for was Dangerous by Michael Jackson. 
1991. So I got that on tape and I listened to it all the time on a sort of very old Walkman. Yeah, I don't know whose it was. So I listened to that all the time. And in long car journeys, I would make my mum and sister listen to that album. And so I think I might have like romanticized this, but I think the cassette broke and I got it on CD. And the CD had the lyrics in, whereas the tape didn't for some reason in the booklet. And so I had made my mum help me write all the lyrics down. And Michael Jackson does not enunciate very well on that album. So that was really <laughs> difficult. And then when I got it on CD, I was like, oh, it has the lyrics in. We didn't yeah. need to do that. So Michael Jackson, then I became obsessed with only really listening to artists whose surname were Jackson. So I would listen to Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson, The Jacksons. I sort of couldn't bring myself to listen to Madonna or Prince because I had read that they were like, you know, in the 80s, they were like the three superstars and they were sort of rivals, even though I don't know if that's true. So yeah, it was just the Jacksons. And Michael Jackson was my first concert that I went to. And I also went to Janet Jackson. So I was really zoned in on those. I like, you know, I liked other stuff. I had sort of cassette singles and I'd love going to buy those. And then I think this says a lot about my music taste going forward, I went into a record shop with a voucher and I saw Bjork's Homogenic. And the cover of that is this amazing sort of Alexander McQueen sort of thing of her as this kind of like futuristic Asia from like another planet. And I was like, oh, that looks good. And I knew of her as this sort of like kooky, weird thing that everyone had sort of said she's she was. And so I was like, right, I'm going to buy that. And I remember that being quite a big thing. Like my mum was like, are you sure? Like you don't really know the songs on this. Yeah. I was like, no, there's something about it. And I really love that album still. And I now I'm quite into like sort of pop that does sort of weirder things or has weirder touches in it. Charlie XCX or, you know, Rina Sawayama or anyone that's sort of trying to sort of fuse like big choruses with like weird elements. And I think in a really basic way, that's probably where that came from. So they were, Bjork and Michael Jackson were like the two sides of my early life musically. What about compilation albums? Did they feature at all? I remember my mum having now, I think it was early, like seven or eight on vinyl. And she had a record player. So I would definitely play that. And then I think I got some on tape. But I think I'm right in saying that Michael Jackson never allowed his music to be on them. That's right. So that was like a no-go for me. Yeah. You know, I was very, because he was such a, the best, you know, king, like calling yourself the king of pop. And like, he was very into sort of record, breaking records and like being the number one. And so I was a bit like, well, how is this compilation a fair reflection of what's going on in pop music if Michael Jackson's not on it? So I did have them, but I spent so much time, I was really into albums actually, weirdly, you know, I would listen, even though I knew that album Inside Out and Bad and, you know, all the ones he'd done before, I was still like, I need to listen to this album from start to finish. And so compilations, now I'm really into sort of making playlists and sort of different artists and mixing them together. But back then I was a bit like, right, albums, albums only. I really remember watching the video for Black or White because it was a big thing that it was going to be on top of the pops for the first time. And just being like, oh my God, this is incredible. Like with the sort of CGI stuff at the end where the faces morph into each other. And then obviously it was the full version with this kind of 10 minute coda at the end where he's smashing things up and like being a panther or whatever. And I just remember, you know, my mom just being like, okay. (laughs) I wasn't sure about the end bit, but like the beginning bit was great. And and I was really like, I don't know, I was really sort of, I didn't like anyone criticizing it because it was like, 
but you know he's Michael Jackson like he knows what he's doing but I remember thinking that might have been a bit much I've got me- memories and it may have been reignited by BBC4 Tony Doherty being very excited on top of the pops it was going to be on at the end of the whole thing being slightly okay should we have shown that or not entirely yeah, we should have shown yeah did anyone watch it before it came on or did it just arrive and they like chucked it in the I'm player it or whatever arrived and they thought we've got a michael jackson exclusive yeah. show all of it but then remember the time you know all of oh, yeah. remember the time is incredible the video is great i had mtv europe or whatever it was at that time mm-hmm. and that remember the time specifically was on a loop i like i'm sure you could watch that three videos later it would be on again and so i would just sit and watch that's on Eddie Murphy and Magic Johnson and yeah, and Iman is in it, and yeah. he sort of kisses her. I still think "Remember the Time" stands up as I mean, it's it's an amazing track, it really. Is. Yeah, 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 so good. Ah, okay, so we'll, yeah, we'll not talk about Michael Jackson dangerous all, all no all the way through, but yeah, we could to be honest. But yeah, I would I would even go as far as to say possibly an overlooked album. Would that be right? I though? think so. I think because it was coming off of the eighties success, yeah. which was sort of astronomical, you know, record breaking. I think people saw that as a slight flop in like relative terms, but yeah, I think it sort of holds together really well. That really got me into like reading credits because mm. the booklet was, it didn't have the lyrics. So I would just read like all the credits and I would sort of notice, like you say, yeah. the new Jack Swing thing, Teddy Riley. I was like, okay, what else? You know, you know, Blackstreet, I sort of then realized. And so I got really into that and like who the sort of songwriters were on it and what the other thing was and I think that came from that I just loved reading them and then you're in the rabbit hole Michael then I'm in the rabbit hole and then when you move on to Bjork it's like well who are all these people like this yeah. is amazing like these are sort of really interesting you know and the connections between like Nelly Hooper and sort of you know Massive Attack and then later like Madonna sort of getting involved with working with those people too and realizing that it's sort of a small world in a in a way and it's exciting when you sort of see the it's threads that are connecting them. It's here, now 58. With the number one from Shapeshifters. 42 massive hits. All the latest chart smashes. The best just got better. Right, let's fast forward then. Let's jump from 91 to yes. 4. So we are going to be looking at now 58, which was released on the 26th of July, 2004. One of the wettest summers on record, I believe, 2004. Oh, I found out. I can't remember. Um, <laughs> but um, yes, it was uh, seemingly the wettest summer for 50 years. What was life like for you in 2004, Michael? It was quite wet, actually, and grey. I had finished university in 2003, and then I stayed in Brighton. I went to Sussex University and then I stayed for like an extra year because I was like, I'm going to live in Brighton because it's better than sort of going back home, which a lot of people do after university, obviously, because you're like, well, what do I do now? And so I was still in Brighton, like working in a shoe shop. Then that had come to an end, I think, around summer. So I think I had moved back home to Kent and was trying to sort of find work in like the media, which is quite tricky you know, what do I want to do? And so there was a lot of unpaid sort of internships and work experience that obviously doesn't really fly when you're back in your mum's house. And she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, "Uh, doing this work that doesn't pay because it's really important. She's like, that doesn't make any sense. So I think that's where I was then. So it was pre me getting a job in a call centre to make some money and which I absolutely hated. 
So based on all of that, this is why pop music is important. <laughs> exactly, because this was, I mean, some of these songs, it's interesting because it opens with Rachel Stevens' Some Girls, which is incredible. And I loved that song at the time, but I didn't, I wasn't like into pop music. Hmm. I was into pop music, but I wasn't like absorbed into this world. I was slightly more R&B and some indie, not a lot, but like I had come out of this phase of like at university of like listening to Radiohead and sort of thinking that's who I was as like a person. And so it was this sort of in-between stage, which is actually why this now 58 is sort of interesting because it does cover that throughout the track listing. You know, some girls to me was like, this, it wasn't Michael Jackson meets Bjork, but it was that thing of like an amazing pop song made in like a really weird way. The bit at the beginning reminds me of like Wizard of Oz and yeah. those like soldiers. And that was a big film for me as a kid. And so it was all these different things. And I was like, this, what is this song about? You know, and then later it's like, oh, it's about blowjobs or whatever. But, um, you know, it was like this weird thing and everyone sort of fancied Rachel Stevens you know she was like in FHM and you sort of be mm. aware of that and her and this and it was like yeah. it was heady mix. Let's just take some time to dwell because it's probably fair to say we're not going to give each of the 42 tracks on Night 58 the same level of deep dive no. elements but I think we need to give Rachel Stevens a bit of time here. This song is so important you've dedicated a whole chapter to it in the book. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is which, hilarious it is an amazing story of a song so yes rachel stevens from s club was now solo debuted at number two let's just talk about this song it's an amazing song to kickstart a new album with it is an incredible structure of a song yeah and so you know it took all the elements of you know it did exactly what pop should do which was take some of these like underground cool in inverted commas elements and just sort of hoover them all up and like yeah. whack them on this big chanty pop song by someone who used to be in like the sort of most kind of purist yeah. most manufactured band you know was also like this sort of pinup yeah does anyone say pinup but you know she was in these two worlds and then they were like right let's just put this weird sort of electro clashy thing gold frappy thing onto her and see what happens and also the lyric is essentially about a sort of pop star looking to be successful by any means and and how that's sort of taken advantage of in a way and so all of these elements came together to just make something perfect but also like that yeah. almost shouldn't happen without giving too much away in the book it's fair to say rachel stevens wasn't the first choice for this track. no so as someone who is quite obsessively into like reading about pop i was on wikipedia or i must have known this story anyway but on wikipedia it sort of tells the story of this song and i was like wouldn't it be amazing if i can get to the bottom of this you know i'm a real journalist so i wanted to investigate and um what else to dedicate my life to than this song so i was like right i'm gonna get to the bottom of this so yeah the story is that richard x and hannah robinson made this song in a studio and hannah robinson demoed it and obviously, as a producer slash songwriter, Richard had a man, an agent man, who sort of sends his songs out, sometimes without his knowledge, to labels to get him work. So Hannah and Richard were like, let's get Rachel Stevens to do it, because it all fits so perfectly, like, in terms of who she is. Unbeknownst to them, it had ended up with Jerry Halliwell's people, who were like, great, this song is amazing, it's exactly what Jerry needs. Jerry had heard it and really liked it, and so... 
these two things were sort of happening in parallel. But I think Rachel had basically already done it. And then Hannah Robinson was writing for Jerry Halliwell's new album. Yeah. And so Jerry just wandered in and was like, oh, Hannah, I love that song, Some Girls. Like, I'm going to record it, but I'm going to rewrite the middle part. And Hannah was like, oh, uh, well, that song's already gone. (laughs) Which was obviously news to Jerry. And so Jerry spoke to her manager and her manager spoke to Hannah's manager and was like, She'll, Hannah will never work in this industry again. Like you've yeah. made the biggest mistake of your life. That bit's all true, but it, the sort of story has evolved into this thing that like Jerry locked herself in a car. Yeah, that's the bit in, I love. Yeah, so Jerry locked herself in a car in protest and was like, I'm not coming out of this car until you give me the song. And so I was like, well, I mean, it sounds like something Jerry might do, but it let's does. find out if it's true. Yeah. So we go into that, like how that <laughs> yeah. all happened. There's a response song from Jerry that she sent to Richard X. Mm which Richard still has, just sort of like, I don't know, like a version of Some Girls where she's sort of like, you know, untie your knickers that are in a twist or something. And then Annie, amazing cult pop star Annie, has a song on her her album um, called Me Plus One, which is yeah. also about this whole situation. And it samples Jerry's dogs that Richard found on YouTube or something. Um, and I think Annie also wanted to record Some Girls. So it became this song that was desperately sort of needed because, you know, 2004 was post Girls Aloud or, you know, Girls Aloud had sort of Mm. were coming and we're going to get to them later. But they were sort of bubbling away and pop was in this position of like, well, actually, we don't want this. We don't want the typical late 90s sound. We want something a bit more exciting. That's what I enjoyed about that period, that oddness of pop that actually Xenomania Richard mm. X were starting to explore. You go into great detail in the book about, you know, the almost like a construction of a song from mm. lots of other pieces of songs. And, you know, we will get to others later on in the album. And also it's an interesting, it's interesting to see how things have changed because typically Jerry wanting your song would be mm. more important than trying to fit that song with someone who it makes sense with, because that wasn't always the case. You know, if the song was lying around, but it was written for whoever, but actually so-and-so needed a song, it would just go to that person because that's just how it works. But Richard not being in that world, and even when he was in that world, still being outside of that world, was like, well, no, I've got like a vision for this and a story for this, and this works with Rachel. Mm. And also he said to me, I can't remember if it's in the book, but, you know, these were his songs. You know, nowadays it's like Calvin Harris featuring Ellie Goulding. Back then it was Rachel Stevens, Some Girls, but there was a world where it would have been Richard X featuring Rachel Stevens. And I think that is essentially what it was. And that's why he didn't want Jerry to do it because it wasn't, it wouldn't be the same. You know, Jerry is not that artist and Rachel does have that kind of ability, a bit like Kylie, you know, to just, to have maybe stuff sort of projected onto her in a way that's a bit less sort of, noisy jerry it would have been too like noisy yeah. it kind of took me back to richard x's album the x factor volume one album yeah which is not on streaming that had been a very important album for indicating where things were going yeah. um, i suppose what richard did was he took those those pop stars like rachel stevens like liberty x and put them into a completely different electro clash context and it was that blurring of the boundaries but also again you know saying pop is important and it should be treated in in the same way that these electro clash artists or indie artists have been treated. 
Yeah, and that there should be like humor there. You know, he yeah. loved the idea of doing that song with Liberty X because they were flop stars in inverted yeah. commas. So it was funny that he wanted to sort of do that song with them and like pretend to be, you know, he performed with them like at the back of the stage, just sort of in a boiler suit or whatever, not really partaking. And then they're like the sort of fancy face of it. And I think he quite liked sort of just having fun with it. And obviously Hannah could do that too. And those songs are funny. I mean, it's amazing that Some Girls was then made a charity single for well, yeah. sport relief. When you analyze the lyrics and the context of the mm. song it just ties the whole story up really nicely yeah and they talk about it in the book that it it became people didn't really care then what the lyrics were what people were saying whether there was like a deeper meaning it didn't really matter necessarily and lyrics hadn't become had become not that important essentially yeah. they were very generalized and so i think they just assumed that this was the same Next to that, we've got Lola's theme by Shapeshifters, which actually kept Rachel off number one. I was a huge fan of that Khalees album, um, Tasty, that Trick Me is the sort of next one. And sort of pairing that with Christina Milian, just because I became obsessed with sort of female R&B singers. You know, I was really into sort of TLC and I loved the first Khalees album and actually really liked the second Khalees album, which didn't really have a sort of big lead single, but is, is really sort of weird and interesting and again it was you know Khalees was like an R&B pop version of a sort of Bjork type innovator who sort of was keen to like do weird stuff and I always thought Milkshake was like the weirdest single when I first heard it I was just like this is insane like what's going on here and then it quickly became sort of what everyone was sort of doing which I love when that happens when someone something is so weird at first that you're like I kind of hate this but then you're like this is incredible and then you know, the Neptune sort of kept doing weird stuff and everyone was on board with that and they would become hits. And Trick Me isn't, I think it's Dallas Austin, that world of sort of just high gloss, really well-made, but sort of interesting and kind of weird. And her voice, I think, adds like a weird, you know it's Khalees like within two seconds of her opening her mouth, which at that time or any time really is not always the case. So that song, and I loved Dip It Low, I just think, you know, the the video and the sort of performance of that is great. So I was really into R&B and it, I wouldn't always buy the albums because the singles were always so good in yeah. a lot of these cases. But in between that is Jamelia, uh, yes. See It In A Boy's Eyes, which I love that song and I loved it at the time. But it was really interesting talking to her in the book because, you know, Chris Martin mm. wrote it with her and is on the song and so that was a really interesting sort of thing because she talked about being a sort of UK R&B artist and how difficult that was at that time and then actually finding that she sort of fit better into this sort of indie world or the rock world that sort of Chris Martin allowed her to enter because she could be a songwriter and she could sort of be able to sort of talk to people a bit more about like being a musician or sort of creating songs and I think that was quite interesting for her and it's an interesting sort of example of what it was like then for her and there was like a barrier in terms of being an R&B artist from the UK and there wasn't a barrier for being a sort of rock artist or sort of being involved in that world and she went to like the Q Awards and Bono like held her hand and like kissed her on the hand although that song is not an indie song it still has that sort of credential or you know 
yeah. Chris Martin can get you into the NME or to Q magazine or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's sort of a good song, but it's also almost like a sad song in a way, I think, for her. As much as she hated doing Superstar, <laughs> I think the realisation that the label wanted a pop star and that's what that song is. And then she was like, well, how about I do sort of R&B again? And they're like, well, why don't you do this song? It's, you know, Chris Martin wants to work with you, so you should yeah. do that. And it's a shame because Thank You came in between those two and actually that's, you know, her best single and that's incredible and she wrote it and it's very real and true to her life. So, yeah, Seeing a Boy's Eyes is like a sort of weird... Because the follow-up album, I think the first single from that was quite rock-focused-ish yeah. and I think that's the decision that had sort of been made was let's try that now. One of the key features as seen through this album is how quickly singles went into the charts mm. and then dropped and how a new entry at number five would have sent panic alarms through <laughs> through record companies whereas yeah. there was no growth of of songs seeing a boy's eyes debuted at number five i'm wondering how that would have been viewed yeah definitely you know the chris martin connection the sort of i think it was like an additional track on the album like when they re-released it so that costs a lot of money I mean, Jamelia told me she owed the label £11 million by the time she'd finished. And so that it wasn't like a cheap project. You know, there was a lot of investment in her and she was sort of doing well in Australia and things like that. So, yeah, I can't, I would imagine they wanted more, which is mad to think now, if yeah. you enter at number five, you would be over the moon. But even if you think nowadays how singles, songs will be around the charts now for in excess of a year. Um, yeah, I'd rather have it this way. It's much yeah. more exciting, isn't it? Looking back at a year like 2004, CD culture, CD single culture was still a big thing. In some ways, it replicated that kind of seven-inch culture of, say, the late 70s in that there was events happening every week on the charts. Yeah, There was still a bit of drama around the charts as opposed to now every single Ed Sheeran track off the album floating around the top 100. And yeah. nobody really knows what the identity of a of a hit single actually is anymore. Yeah. And we're in a weird place now that like it's a news story that Kylie Minogue's latest single entered at number 26. It's because yeah. it's so rare that an artist like Kylie, who's been around for so long, who doesn't yeah. have a huge streaming presence, can even get near the top 40. Yeah. And so that's like that's really interesting. But yeah, you lose the sort of drama of, you know, Madonna's apparently done a song with Max Martin and it would have been amazing for that to come out and be like, oh my God, is that going to get to number one? Or is that going to get, you know, where's that? And now it's like, well, it probably won't chart. And that's quite sad. Yeah. I was looking down, like the first seven or eight songs on this on this CD one debuted at either one, two, three, whatever, and dropped. That was it. Yeah. It was basically slingshot into the charts. Now, here you are. Yes. Outcast, almost like an old-fashioned track, debuted at number six, I think it was, on the 29th of November, 2003, and took 13 weeks to get to number three. But, you know... That's so good. That's almost like... And it's not harking back to days of old, but that is the way singles used to evolve their way through the chart. Yeah. And I definitely had that one on my sort of edited list because that song was one of, or is one of those ones that you... Like Crazy in Love you know, that you were just like, well, this is it. Like, this is going to be a song that everyone plays at weddings and parties and anything for, like, the rest of time. You know, like, that's such a classic instant. I was obsessed with that song. I didn't tire of listening to it or hearing it everywhere I went. 
and yeah that is a weird anomaly on this list of like yeah a song yeah. that took time for people to sort of connect to or you know to keep building and building and building like that and you know he did it on the at the brits didn't he so that probably sort of helped and all these things that you would get someone to do to keep the song going and that happened with that song i'm not going to dwell on eamon and frankie at all uh, i cannot believe that those songs got to number one it's only just to mention it from a chart statistic point of view that there was a seven week run between these two singles if it <laughs> i don't want you back if you are b it's basically uh yeah i mean it, uh, yeah there's no relationship between them whatsoever i like i like the response song idea though i did i do remember yeah. thinking that was quite an interesting thing and well, the... that took me back to michael jackson because there was billy jean oh yes it was the response song to billy jean by lydia murdoch called superstar which was supposed to be billy jean singing back to michael jackson I, I can't remember the lyrics, but it was that kind of call and response thing. There's no yeah. response songs in the charts. <laughs> wow, they should have done a response song to some girls. Yeah. And that would have been... Is, yeah, this is the thing for listeners now. Uh, let us know which songs require a, a response yeah. song. Some of them absolutely do. When I went back to this album again, I didn't even bother listening to Eamon and Frankie again. <laughs> no. Also, he's called Eamon. Uh, it's, not, it's not the one. Sorry, Eamon. Not really, to be honest. So, um, yeah. Where would you like to go next? Well, I had Scissor Sisters, Laura. Oh, yeah. They were everywhere. Like, those yeah. songs were always on the radio, on TV, on, you know, everything. So I didn't own that record. I quite, I liked Nightworks, which I think was their third one. And I sort of, you know, knew Jake Shear's presence and what he sort of was. And I did love that that happened in 2004 and I think that was the biggest selling album of that year which is incredible for like you know the year before section 28 was still around in yeah. schools and here was like this sort of incredibly gay band you know not just Jake but like it was just yeah. camp and gay and sort of didn't really hide any of that and you know wasn't successful in its own country because of that reason really you know it wasn't stocked in certain shops or you know no one sort of played them and then over here they just found this huge audience and they sort of mean more as a sort of what they stand for to me and, and to be the biggest selling album of that year on your yep. debut having come yep. out of nowhere is yeah. is incredible you know bigger than Robbie Williams or sort of anyone that was established yep. at that time and songs that still completely stand the test of time as yeah well. yeah because they sounded sort of classic yeah. You know, at that time, I, I, to be honest, I thought, I remember thinking, oh, Laura is like another cover at that time, because I was just like, well, this is, you know, this is like a sort of classic song. It sounds like a classic song. I think that's why the album fit, it fitted across genres. It fitted across those tribes of enemy, of Q, yeah. of Radio 1. You know, I remember at the time people, you know, kind of describing Take Your Mama as like a kind of, was it Elton John or Fleetwood Mac, mm. you know, that kind of stuff. It was, again, that pop sensibility of recognising the past, but turning it into something else that can be serviced across all those platforms. Yeah, and, you, you know, the power of having albums in supermarkets at yeah. that time as well, you know, just being like, oh, I've heard six of those songs on Radio 1 constantly, and now the album is yeah. on my weekly shop in Tesco or whatever. I'm just going to mm. buy that. And that's, they were that band 
who had sort of crossed over completely, but were also like doing weird stuff in their videos, you know, filthy, gorgeous or whatever is, it's not hiding like what's going on. It's not sort of like, are we better sort of straighten up literally to sell records? It was the subversive in the mainstream, which which is always when pops are its best. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I put the next one is George Michael, just because to to sort of honour that in the book, I speak to sort of closeted gay people, like they were sort of out, but not really because they were told it was bad for them. You know, H, H from Steps and and one of um, V and, you know, obviously what happened with Will Young and Stephen Gately, there was this sort of idea that you just, you can be out, but just don't sort of tell anyone, which is sort of not the same. So George Michael was a kind of figure of, I don't know, I guess it was an example of what can happen and actually how bad the reaction to that was in the press you know if your label is saying well actually it's just not worth it you know a lot of people are going to say a lot of horrible stuff and it could affect your career as much as that turned out mainly not to be true with Stephen Gately there was George Michael where they did write horrible things the headlines were awful you know the sort of stuff they did the photos they took the lengths they went to and then in America it did end his career essentially you know yeah the patience album was an amazingly strong album. You know, we're talking about Dangerous earlier on, been often overlooked. I think Patience by George Michael album isn't often talked about in the same terms as yeah. Without Prejudice and Older, but it's an incredibly strong album. Yeah, I don't think Mary J. Blige's record label would let their duet be put onto the greatest hits in America because of what had happened. You know, so there is actual evidence of that being a, an issue. And so, yeah, George is sort of, I do love that song, Flawless, Go to the City, but, you know, you have to sort of acknowledge him next to sort of the Scissor Sisters in terms of, like, breaking down some of those barriers, especially with sort of, on that scale, to sell to that market, the sort of middle England market is is incredible in 2004. You know, the other way you forget how supermarkets were such a big... Yeah, I bought loads of albums there because they were always a bit cheaper and sort of, if you, you know, if you weren't near a HMV or whatever, you could be near a a supermarket. And walking about supermarkets now, it's almost impossible to find uh, sales music. You're more likely to, yeah, I don't know, they sell Habitat towels or whatever, you're more likely to get a nice new towel. And I, yeah, I'm intrigued to see if this like physical you know, everyone falling back in love with like physical product mm. will extend to sort of CDs or if they're just a bit annoying still, you know, like yeah. that they just sort of clutter up. Whereas I think records, people are a bit like, I've got records. Because of the cyclical nature, we've been here before, Michael, we know the cyclical yeah. nature of product. There's no doubt it will come back round again. Um, I think so. Because no one expected the vinyl no. revolution or whatever people are calling it because they were dead for so long. Like no one cared, you know. And now everyone is selling a huge amount of records. Like Lana Del Rey's last three number ones or whatever have all been powered by people buying vinyl. Those people at Sony hanging on for the mini-disc revival, but we'll see what happens. Mm. I wanted to touch on my indie days. Franz Ferdinand Matinee and Razorlight, Golden Touch. I mean, Golden Touch is great. I still think Golden Touch is brilliant, but Razorlight, not so great. But also I loved, I did, I used to buy The Enemy then and I did love sort of did love that kind of ridiculous thing of just hyping up all these bands who were just sort of mediocre or like just above mediocre. They, you know, Johnny Burrell is like a great 
ludicrous pop star of like he's he wore all white to perform yeah. at Live Eight, whatever it was, and like said ridiculous things to get press. And you know, I mean, what more do you want from someone of that thing? But musically, quite rubbish. But Golden Touch is great still, yeah. and I did love that song. And Franz Ferdinand, I mean, matinees. I don't know. They just had one great song, I think, and then sort yeah. of rode that wave. And yeah. they looked great, and their sort of design was really good, and like the package was good. And Franz Ferdinand like ticked that box of being like smart. It's a very light indie presence on this album. In fact, that's about it. I mean, unless you want to pull Keen into that, but I don't think Keen Keen would go. No. Then it goes into the Rasmus, which I don't know what that is. But, you know, there's not much indie. And, you know, um, that's indicative of where 2004 was. I just want to touch on Franz Ferdinand slightly because there's a bit of a Xenomania touch point yes. here. Um, and it's a track called Lucid Dreams. And I know that I think they'd kind of worked with Brian Higgins and the Xenomania team, but I don't know if it properly worked. I no, think it's it a massive missed opportunity there. Well, Brian told me, maybe this isn't in the book, but he told me that he couldn't help bands who had run out of ideas. He couldn't give them ideas. He needed them to come with something and sort of match him. And there was a sense that they were looking for him to sort of give them yeah. something and rather than like him help with what they had or whatever. So yeah, they came and it didn't work out. And I think they were very into like setting stuff up that took a long time and like tweaking things and like, you know, this sound isn't so there was a lot of so yeah, yeah that didn't work. And yeah. uh same with New Order, I think. Yeah. They tried stuff as well. Yeah, the as I say the track Lucid Dreams on um tonight, on the album tonight, there's an end coda to that track, Lucid Dreams, which is basically, it almost sounds like Franz Ferdinand have left. Yeah. And said, actually, do you know what? This is what I'm going to do to your track. <laughs> and it is, it's utterly brilliant. Band. Yeah, they did They did do a cover of uh, Sound and Vision with Xenomania and Girls Aloud, yeah. which is on like a BBC, like a Radio 1 oh, thing. Yeah. One of the covers albums things. Yeah. yeah, so I think that might be the thing that sort of tested the water. They loved uh, uh, Wake Me Up. I think that was the song that um the Girls Aloud song that got them sort of like, oh, who was Xenomania? Like, this is really great. Let's sort maybe we can work with them. And then they did that song, and then I think it all went a bit wrong. I can't imagine Alex and Brian necessarily hitting I, it off. No, quite strong personalities. Yeah, and I think you know, it might not have been the best time for the band to sort of be trying something like that in in the way that sort of the Strokes sort of went and did stuff with Nigel Godridge and then were like, actually, what are we doing? Let's just go back and work with the guy who did the first one. I think that sort of happened at the same time. And so it was a bit like, no. And, you know, Xenomania were at their sort of peak of like doing this amazing stuff with Girls Aloud. I just think it wasn't really worth their time in the end. Compact Disc 2 kicks off with Britney and mm, everything. Beautiful song. There's a song you don't hear anymore. No, and it's so lovely and sort of, you know, very like, I don't want to say that like you could imagine Billie Eilish singing it, but it has that sort of like, it's quite hushed, like it's quite sinister sounding, I think. The production, again, there's a Bjork connection because I think it's Guy Sigsworth who did stuff on Homogenic and Post and has worked with Bjork. And so... That's one of the few singles that she co-wrote mm. um, at the piano, I think. And it's about Justin Timberlake. It's about Justin Timberlake. So uh, it continues that sort of drama. 
yeah. which was very early noughties. Which is, it's yeah, it's a nice wee mini soap opera. Yeah. Uh, basically, Britney's response to Crimey River. And being very, like, mature and being actually like, you know what, you know, we had a lovely relationship and now it's all yeah. gone a bit. But here's a lovely ballad. For potential future pop stars, that's how you follow a song like Toxic. Yeah, exactly. Classic thing of, like, third single is a ballad. And it went to number one. Yep, number one. Debut number one. Um, and Britney's fifth number one overall. So still very much... Big yeah, and paired with an absolutely horrific slash amazing video by David LaChapelle of sort of her looking like she's slit her wrists and died in the bath. And then yeah. her sort of in heaven looking... I mean, great. for You know, to be at that sort of level of success and then still be doing a sort of quite Madonna-y sort of controversial video with quite a sort of controversial director as well at that time is is amazing. What do you think of Chocolate by Kylie Minogue? I think is one of her worst singles. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Because you know what? I was doing, I was doing my prep for this and I thought... Michael's going to come in and say, uh, "This song changed my life." I don't like. I don't like it. I don't. I don't hate it, but I don't oh. listen to it. I think the vocal is uh, is too breathy for me, and it's a bit sort of. It doesn't feel like a Kylie no. song to me. But then that album was sort of her. You know, I love slow, and I love Red Blooded Woman. Was that the second single? Yeah, slow worked because it was completely different. You were talking about. Pagano. Yeah. It was totally different, and I was like, "Whoa, stopping your tracks." And I went back and listened to Chocolate, and I thought, no, I, I haven't changed my view on it. It, it. No, it needs like a really good remix or just something. It should have, I think it should have done, they should have sort of reworked it as like the single if they wanted to go with that. I don't know why they wanted to go with that, but I guess because third single's a ballad. But they should have done something to it, I think. I, I think can't, yeah, I never go back to listen to it. It's not one. And when you think next up's I Believe in You, which is like, we're back. Completely. Yeah. 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 So- Oh, good. That's good. So, why don't you just be fine? (laughs) Now, Girls Aloud, then McFly, then Sugar Babes, then Busted. Having read the book, Mm. some of those songs go slightly better together, shall we say? Yes. Yeah. Chucking them all together like that is very odd because Girls Aloud, McFly, Sugar Babes, and Busted were pop at that time you know like they were the remaining big pop acts and then they've just put them all in a row let's start with the absolute banger that is the show (laughs) if you look up xenomania in the dictionary this is the song that would probably yeah i think this is the one where everyone was like this was the first single from the second album wasn't it yeah it was yeah so it was like people could easily still say that they were a bit of a like one hit wonder not that they you know sound of the underground no good advice life got cold jump etc but it was still the album hadn't sold as much as I think they'd hoped. And there was still a sense that like we're not entirely convinced that this yeah. is gonna work. And the show was the one that was like, right, everything is like clicking here. Xenomania got them for the entire album. Mm-hmm. They clearly were like going on all cylinders because it's just sort of and it's a lot more dancey. You know, they had yeah. been quite rock in inverted commas, you know, mm-hmm. they had had guitars, they'd sounded like Blondie or My Sharona or whatever and then the ballad and then Jump was a sort of like from a film but this was like right let's add some sort of ravey bits and like this lyric about sort of not being promiscuous or like waiting and you know yeah. the structure of it is wild and it builds and does everything that a good Xenomania song should do and I think that was when it all clicked the artwork was great 
the videos were getting better, the clothes were better. You can always indicate when pop is brilliant, when the artists don't fully get it at first. That comes through the narrative in the book from the girls, that actually they were hearing bits of this and going, we can't see how this is going to work. Yeah, they had tried to ditch Cinemania early on. Like they tried to stop working with them after or around No Good Advice, which even though it was the second single was one of the last things they had done for the first album. You know, they didn't listen to songs like this. No one did because there weren't really songs like this. They listened to Blue Cantrell and yeah. Christina Aguilera and they liked R&B and they liked songs that had a narrative which was my boyfriend's a bastard or, you know, I'm heartbroken. It yeah. wasn't sort of mashed up 15 yeah. different songs. So, yeah, it was, it took some time. And I think they gave into the process more on this album and the results were sort of these incredible songs that just kept coming. BBC Music described it as a feisty thumping track with a positively rude baseline. Positively rude. Positively That's rude nice. baseline. <laughs> and again, you have these like, you know, these aren't, hired musicians necessarily they're working on these these you know i think john shave did that keyboard riff that opens it and they worked on that for days and weeks to yeah. sort of get it right and they were sort of you know they were focused they weren't it wasn't a conveyor belt in the sense that like another band would be taking up their time they were like while the girls were off sort of on tour or whatever they would be working on these songs constantly to get them up to this point so they're very like crafted sort of chaotic but it's like crafted chaos oh, yeah there isn't a single second of that song that's wasted. Yeah. It really is. And then it's done and you're like, what just happened? It finishes too soon. And the mark of a good song is when it's finished, when you hear it again. I'm going to put you in spot. So the video is set in Curls Allowed. The song. Can you remember each of the girls' names? I actually can't because <laughs> their videos are a sort of... I have seen that video a lot, but I no, I can't remember because uh, I visually I don't think they came into their own until a bit later. Well, that's my okay. polite way. So Nicola Roberts was Chelsea Tanner, Nadine was Frenchie. Oh, Sarah was Super Styler, Cheryl was Maxi Wax. And, oh wow! And Kimberly was the boss. Which going back to the book, that makes sense. And I mean, oh my god, that's so funny as well because they're very. Kimberly was very like, oh no, no, like when I, you know, Nicola said that she sort of had. The clipboard and she was like in charge she was like oh no but actually you know it was known because she's called the boss it's very important that you have someone like that in a band someone says yeah. that in the book about sugar babes that they didn't have a kimberly and yeah. i think girls aloud would have imploded i think without kimberly so sugar babes then this was track three of sugar babes version two <laughs> so yes in the middle got to number eight i love this xenomania yeah. again and and i sort of think if you hate pop music because you're boring and you're always like it's not creative then Xenomania allowed you to sort of be okay with liking this stuff because this song and some of their other Sugar Babes ones were made around these sort of weird samples or songs that you know they go to Paris on day trips Miranda and Brian and just sort of crate dig in record shops like people that Chinstroke or whatever do and they would do that and they'd find these weird things and they'd pick them based on like the cool covers or whatever and they'd be stoned and they'd like bring them back and be like oh let's listen to this and then they just Brian would pick like the loop of like one tiny bit and he was like oh I love that and so they'd build a song around that and that's sort of creative and weird and like experimental and all those things that everyone that hates pop music says that pop isn't and so 
if you're looking for an excuse to have fun and enjoy pop music, this allows you to do that. And caught in the middle, or in the middle rather, is based around a sample of DJ Mogui, uh, You Know Why. And I think Round Round has a similarly weird or slightly sort of European song that wasn't a hit anywhere. And that's the sort of drum roll thing. So they were doing like weird stuff like that, but making it into the sort of hits, which is great. You can do both those things. Actually, there was a huge amount of work on these records. Yeah, it wasn't made quickly, even though the girls, both girls allowed and the Sugar Babes maybe weren't in the studio for that long, because ultimately you just need the vocals. I mean, the Sugar Babes did co-write them, so they'd be there longer. But with the girl, with Girls Allowed, it was like, well, we need you to come in and sing these songs. And then once that's done, we'll build up the rest of the track and we'll sort of work it and we'll take bits from here and stitch them onto these bits. And so they wouldn't always know what the song sounded like until the end. They weren't, it wasn't a work in progress. You'd hear it on the video shoot or at a photo shoot. The label would be like, this is biology. And they'd be like, what? What do you mean? And that's why Nicola said that, you know, she was walking around a shopping centre and she heard Hailey's Giving You Up. I always forget the name of that song. The one that Zermania did. Yeah. And she was like, we, this is our song. Like, how is this leaked? Like, we did this. And they they were like, no, this is Kylie's song now. (laughs) Or I think All Fired Up by the Saturdays has elements of bits that the girl for Girls Aloud had sung. But then maybe that was from a different song at that point. And, you know, it's a wild way of working, but it wasn't an easy way. And it wasn't like a conveyor belt way. You couldn't switch them around and give them to sort of anyone. It had to, and Girls Aloud especially, like, made that work they had the personalities to make those songs work like the show and biology and love machine and you know it can't just be done by anyone it's almost like kind of mid-noughties fever dream of just bits of songs bits of songs floating around sung in eight different keys on a loop which is you know they'd all get what they called studio headache because they were just like constantly nobody sees the show in 15 different keys or whatever and then stitched together my favourite thing actually was them being on a video shoot and them having to call Miranda and saying, look, I sang this line. We need to know who the video director should point the camera at. And Miranda having to say, well, actually, it's Cheryl until midway through like the third word. And then it goes into Nadine. Yes. And so you're going to have to get both of you to do it. And I think that's why it was so much fun revisiting these tracks. Um, yeah. And I'm going to say it, the artistry that goes into actually yeah. constructing these pop songs. Yeah. yeah. And then you, I love that it was a period of like, you can enjoy a step song and an S club song that isn't made in that way just as much. It's, they're not always better. It's just yeah. a very interesting way of doing it. An exciting way of tackling that, I guess. <laughs> So let's step out of the Xenomania laboratory. Yes. <laughs> and, let, and, let, uh, and let's go back. So, we, yeah, shall we put McFly and Busted together? Yes. Well, they are conjoined in that yeah. way. You know, saying there is overlap. Like Tom was, was in Busted briefly until they decided on a trio and then was sort of kept on as a, like, songwriter you know they were like you know we like you we're gonna find you the management were like we'll find you a project yeah and so that project became mcfly and obviously they both sort of changed boy bands or destroyed boy bands in a in a way of what what we sort of had seen with five and blue and it wasn't like that it wasn't 
dance routines and sort of suits. It wasn't Westlife, it wasn't Boyzone, it wasn't key changes or covers. It was instruments played live-ish, songwriting, a sort of Green Day, Blink-182, triple-breasted women thing. (laughs) And that was very exciting for teenagers who were sort of, or young kids moving into teenagers, like a bit of rebellion and using some of the kind of markers of like those bands, the American bands, but making it a bit more better and like catchier. And actually Busted and McFly, Busted were much more like triple-breasted women and like fancying your teacher and like air hostess is on here and it's obviously like i messed my pants when i flew over france which was edited out of the video um yes same viewing and which peter robinson interviewed them recently and was like oh hang on that's not about like wetting yourself or hooing yourself is it and they were like no and no one really picked up on that it's not that so they were much more like juvenile and actually mcfly were a bit more like we've listened to like the beach boys once or like yeah. the beatles and we're sort of going down that road even though i think five colors in your hair is about as if do you remember that tv show yeah that's right i'm sure i might yeah. have imagined this but i'm sure it's the idea was that it was the main girl in that who has like yeah. streaks in her hair and, and that song is they're open that's their sort of debut single so i that's think the debut single thing is you know it picks all the best bits of power pop from the 70s mm, yeah that kind of surf pop from the 60s and proper earworms of songs i mean yeah melodies you know very cleverly be. done oh, really yeah, absolutely and to, having spoken to tom tom is like an older person in a younger person's body like he <laughs> you can imagine him loving those songs like he should have been in the 70s oh yeah yeah. And so it was the personalities of those people yeah. or the main people. You know, James Bourne is is a huge pop fan and does like all that stuff and hated Westlife and so wanted to sort of make something that was different to that. And obviously, I think the same year, like Green Day had American Idiot. Mm. And they sort of had this big comeback of like, we're now a bit more sort of serious and we're sort of talking about politics. And then you had Busted who were actually still like jizzing over France or whatever. <laughs> so. It was perfect timing and it was very yeah. well done and they the marketing and everything was great. Yeah, and they both had boy band members. You know, mm. it wasn't like they were sort of three or four ugly lads. Charlie's yeah. eyebrows. Charlie is like a boy band heartthrob <laughs> who's yeah. just a bit too tall, but can work in like a sort of this setting. And then Harry Judd never had his top on. It's in McFly. So it was the perfect sort of, You reached all these different audiences and you moved the boy band thing on without sort of like being too boring about it. And it was interesting to speak to sort of, I spoke to the editor of Kerrang! at this time and they were like, we couldn't go near them, which Mm. is such an interesting thing of like, what are the parameters here? Because you did cover Linkin Park, who were essentially manufactured in the sense that there was an audition process for the singer and yet you're not covering Busted because they were an audition band, but they cover all your readers' bases in, in a certain way. And then McFly getting called all sorts of things by NME mm. when they're making like really well-crafted guitar music. And, and obviously Charlie then went into Fightstar and they did cover Fightstar because the argument was that they were a bit rubbish at the <laughs> beginning and then they got better. But um, hey-ho. So yeah, it's interesting to have them in. And then I think you have to include V, who are also on this album. Yeah, yeah. No offence to V. I would assume they're on this album because they're on the same management as Busted and McFly. And I think they were allowed in because 
no one was listening to V. And I think that's because the management wanted sort of their cake, wanted to have their cake and eat it because they were like, let's completely destroy the idea of the old style boy band yeah. with Busted and McFly. But let's also try and do an old school boy band with V and see if we can have both. And there was only room for one and yeah, it, was it wasn't V. Completely under my radar at the time. So I went back, had a listen. I actually quite enjoyed that track. It's produced by Stargate. You know, yeah. that album, yeah. which is actually much better than you would imagine, has yeah. a really good two, one really good Xenomania song called Fools, a slightly dodgy Xenomania one that has a rap in it, which is still quite good. And then this single with that Stargate did, which is sort of country, weird sort of like electro country thing. Um, they did a cover of Can You Feel It by the Jags. Yes. Um, which actually... When I saw it was there on stream and I thought, why did they not release that? It was a B-side, whatever B-side was in 2004. Mm. I went back and listened to it. It's actually a bit limp. Yeah. Oh, I think it was their biggest hit, was it? Or whatever yeah. it was a B-side of. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, it was B-side of Hip to Hip. Um, oh, Hip to Hip is the Xenomania one. And it yeah. is good, but then it, one of them has to do a really excruciating rap where there's lots yeah. of sort of Americanisms and he says it in a very straight British accent, which is quite yeah. funny. And what I did know that V stands for five because there's five of them in the band oh i don't think i even asked that no well <laughs> well well that's what wikipedia has told me okay obviously you couldn't be called guess, five because of yes. five, so they were called v but there were five. Oh, i don't know maybe it was a bit of a nod to five because they were sort of packaged as quite like yeah. street yeah but there had been attempts to do that before and it, you know like triple eight and those guys and it just it had run its course by that point yeah and very quickly that's why i think it's interesting that blue are on this with what i think was one of their last singles which is bubbling and the one that sort of no one really remembers and i think that's also indicative of the boy band era coming to yeah. an end yeah this was their penultimate single before curtain falls which is better i think we'll find yeah it. And then, uh, but yeah, on the way out, number nine. I mean, wh what does number nine say? <laughs> number nine is like basically being, you might as well be 39 at yeah. that point. Like number nine is is nothing. Everyone had left the building. Bubbling, no G. Yeah. Of course. Was, single four from album three. Yeah. But it probably had a video that cost like £250,000 because people were still spending money on fourth singles, which is amazing. And then you also have Versus, Call You Sexy, which is a, another weird moment because Marvin mm -hmm. then became key member of JLS and they mm -hmm. sort of brought the boy band back later on in yeah. a sort of throwback. You know, it felt like a sort of throwback what they were yeah. doing with the outfits and the dance routines call you sexy number 11 brainchild of blue member simon webb mm -hmm. which sure. always makes it sound like it's in a laboratory create <laughs> band brainchild of blue like when ronan was obviously definitely the manager of westlife of course because yeah, it was like ronan keating introduces yeah. westlife or whatever um, sure but if you look at versus versus is that right versus <laughs> discography the chart positions go 7 11 29 <laughs> yeah and that is that's but it. then I think they still had an album, did they? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There was an Which album. again is what I was saying, like this sort of world of, if you did like a band who did have a few singles out, there probably would be an album. And yeah. as much as you might never listen to it again, you at least got something. It's just when you think that pressure pot of expectation that was there. Yeah. Panic business meetings around tracks having gone that way in the charts after one album, whereas you look back to different times in pop, maybe even now, where bands were given time to grow and, and just yeah. 
something else. 2004. And there was never a sense of like stepping back and looking at the bigger picture. No. It felt like Triple Eight sort of talked about, they just sort of really went ahead with this one idea of them as this type of boy band. Mm-hmm. And they didn't really see that everything was changing and there was never any sense of like, let's change tack or let's try and like do something different. It was very much like, oh, that hasn't worked. And it's like, well, yeah, it was never going to work because we're not in 2000 anymore. And there's just a sort of slowness, I guess, to like react. What else should we talk about? Oh, Atomic Kitten. Atomic Kitten closes the album. With their final, in inverted commas, single. Mm. It wasn't, but it was, but it wasn't. (laughs) They kept coming back, I think. They reworked like an older song as their next single for some reason. I have to confess that I'd never heard this song before because no, no. I didn't really know much of their work outside of Whole Again and the sort of obvious covers that they'd yeah. done. It sounds like Every Time or it sounds like a sort of version of Every Time. I had no recollection of this song. But if if this had been their final single, and their proper final single, this mm. would be quite a nice way to finish. Yeah, because Liz like, wrote it, I think, yeah. and she sings yeah. a lot and of it and it's quite sweet. It kind of bookends the CD quite well with Every Time because it's very similar. It's a very delicate song. If you haven't heard someone like me by Atomic Kitten, you probably haven't <laughs> Check listened. Check it out. Check it out. It's actually quite nice. Maybe it was a sort of interesting end of an era for them and that type of girl band. Like Sugar Bays was sort of still rolling on, but they were coming to a sort of interesting point again. And I think Atomic Kitten had sort of, they were exhausted by that point. If you consider the kind of 2000 to 2004, that that kind of first half of the decade, bands that were the big thing, you know, and again in the book, you look at, for example, the story of Hearsay, they now look tired at this stage. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and Natasha had had a baby. As we know, it's hard for someone that's had a baby to come back Mm. quickly to being a pop star. But that's the expectation at that point, because the treadmill that you're on is still going and, and they can't wait. Yeah, You know, it's seen that you can't wait because your audience will move on. And once that happens, you've lost it. And so I think she was exhausted for very legitimate reasons because she just had a baby and was sort of can't we have a break and the idea of the break is sort of a more modern thing really you know now it's like oh no we're on hiatus so that you can come back if you need to or no one feels like you've sort of completely abandoned them but back then you didn't really get the chance because if you waited longer than six months really or a year Mm. you were done you know, Hearsay were only around for, I don't know, 15 months or whatever. They had two albums in that period and like singles. And the second album came out less than a year, maybe after the first one, because they needed to keep it going. But maybe they should have had a bit of a break. With the beauty of hindsight, you can see where things were going. It's interesting to call what's happening next. Yeah, exactly. And this was a weird time, I think, because as I said, like, they were all sort of falling away. Busted weren't that far off of being gone at this point either mcfly would sort of carry on girls aloud would carry on sugar babes but it wasn't the era of sort of 17 pop acts around you know that had sort of that was falling away we were coming to this sort of next phase of where the book ends which is the lily allen era really of that kind of world and then after that you just had a lot of american you know by 2009 it was Gaga, Katy yeah. Perry, etc., and then One Direction, which is a different world altogether. Which I suppose is why this album is a great snapshot of that period of the book that you described. Yeah. Transitioning from what was the Spice Girls and that first iteration of boy bands and how that evolved quite naturally into that creative, different genres, different opportunities. Yeah, and it, it hopefully enabled people 
you know, people talk now about having busted a McFly as like gateways into sort of mm. other guitar music and other sort of bands and things like that. And that's exciting in a way. That's what sort of you should do, yeah. you know, in the way that sort of, I don't know, even if you listen to Rachel Stevens and we're like, oh, who's Richard X? Oh, he's used to be Girls on Top and used to do these like weird mashups and he sort yeah. of is into like Warp or Rough Trade Records or, you know, all these things are sort of exciting gateways or Scissor Sisters and all their references that they sort of put in their music. It's sort of, this is quite a great now, actually. I'm glad I picked it because it is really exciting in the way that you can kind of venture off into weird areas. From that point of view, how good a snapshot of summer 2004 is this for you? I think it's pretty good, actually. Like, and from a personal point of view, it sort of does touch on a lot of things that were happening for me around that time or what I was listening to, you know, it has the sort of interesting R&B, the sort of weirder Khalees energy in there. And then even like the Britney one is, is sort of, if someone was like, oh, every time is my favorite Britney single, you'd be like, oh, that's interesting. Like you're an interesting yeah. person. Um, because, you know, that is, is such a sort of delicate, slightly weird song with a weird video. And it's a producer that's sort of worked with lots of interesting people and Madonna and Bjork and everyone. So yeah, in amongst that are sort of telling signs of what was happening around that time and what was about to come. What would you pick as your highlights? What would you what would you take from it? I mean, the sh- the show is is the show my favorite? Yeah, I think so. Some girls, <laughs> some girls hate uh, the show, <laughs> but not Kylie Minogue's Chocolate. Sorry, there'll be people out there saying you haven't mentioned anything about Ozone. <laughs> oh, I know. Who are those people? <laughs> also, I have to say, I really love that Gabrielle song, and it wasn't a song that I am like instantly familiar with, but yeah. it's so good. And I, I think it's worth noting that Biff Stannard co-wrote that, who is mm-hmm. obviously also incredibly yeah. influential across the period of my book for doing yeah. obviously Spice Girls Five, Emma Bunton, you know, everyone. Yeah. yeah. But so it was great to see him represented. Is he still doing loads of great stuff now? <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and heading back to summer 2004. Thank you for having me. It was great. We have discovered lots of things about Xenomania, but we've also discovered lots of things about what a a fascinating year 2004 actually was. Yeah. Michael, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.